You know, one of the benefits of preaching through Scripture is that you are forced to do passages that you wouldn't normally do. I would never normally preach this preach. Like, seriously, I mean, did you listen to Sam reading this? This is hectic. This is like there's a head on a platter. There's a big party going on, probably lots of drugs and alcohol. Um, Like, what does this mean? Like, what does any of this mean for us today? And it has been an interesting week trying to prepare this because I was like, how on earth do I have this? Can we just skip it? Because the next one is Jesus feeding the 5,000. And that sounds a whole lot more appealing than trying to do John the Baptist beheaded. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, Come be a Christian. You may have your head on a platter next week. Um, So, but hopefully as we go through this, we will learn something. It's interesting because this passage is found in Luke and Matthew, and which means that the gospel writers found the story of John the Baptist beheading significant enough that they all included it for us to hear. Um, so, if, if they thought it was significant, then it probably is significant for us. And I've got five points that hopefully will help us as we navigate this passage. And some of them are a little bit all over the place. But hopefully as we get to the fifth point, we can wrap up in Jesus. So, first point is that Jesus is making waves. We've kind of said this before, but up in, like... Up until now, if you have been doubting this, what what certainly Mark wants you to to know by this point is that the kingdom of God is advancing. Jesus is making waves. Herod has heard about Jesus. Everyone's heard about Jesus. It's like the momentum of this Jesus movement has grown and grown and grown, and it's become so significant that Herod himself is now talking about Jesus and wondering who he is. And, and that's part of the question that this passage poses us, is who is Jesus? Because not only is Herod asking who Jesus is, other people are saying who Jesus is. Um, and some people are saying, hey, this is John the Baptist, come back to life. Hey, this is Elijah, he's a prophet. You know, we, you get these kind of moments throughout the Gospels, but they This news of Jesus has spread so far that people are like, who is this guy? Who is he? How does he fit in? How does he fit into our understanding of the world? How does he fit into my framework of religion? Uh, How does he fit in into the story of Israel and who, of the people of God at that time? How does this person, Jesus... Um, fit in. Jesus is making waves, like John the Baptist made waves. John the Baptist, wow. John the Baptist, you know, was preaching, and people came from all over. Jesus was making waves. And he's making waves in one sense. He's, the, the movement is happening because Jesus is is living in a way that is just different from the time. He's healing people. He's treating people differently. I don't know if, uh, if, if you remember that passage that we spoke about 
early on in uh, chapter 2 and 3 when Jesus heals the leper and how significant Jesus healing a leper is. A leper would have had to have gone around the streets shouting, unclean, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine how demoralizing, demeaning it must be to have been a leper in that time when you literally verbally have to shout unclean so that no one would touch you, no one would come around you. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the man, touches him and says, be clean. He lives in a way that is totally different from the way of the time. He's healing people. He's setting people free. He's teaching, as they said, not like all the other teachers. He's teaching as one with authority. And all of a sudden, Jesus, he's walking on water. He's calming the storms. He's feeding the 5,000. Jesus is doing this all. He's, he is spectacular that the whole region is asking this question. Even as we get to this point now, Herod himself, who is this man. And it's not just Jesus, John the Baptist before him. As we go on, Paul, governors wanted to meet Paul. Who is this guy? What are, are they doing? What's amazing is that when the kingdom of God is at its best, it makes waves in the areas around it. So much so that people ask the question, who are they? One of the questions I've had to ask myself is, is this. If Harbour City closed down today and we left Glenwood and ceased to start meeting, would anyone care? Would anyone notice? Would it make a difference in our community? And that's a challenging question. It's a challenging question for me as a leader to think about that and to ask that question and to say, are we making waves? Is the kingdom of God breaking out within our community? Are we living in such a way that people are looking at the space, at the church, at our lives and going, yo, who are these people? Why do they do what they do? Why are you living in the way that you're living? N.T. Wright says that part of this passage challenges the church to be the kind of people that other people talk about. And we're not the kind of people like Westboro Baptist Church. Have you ever heard of Westboro Baptist Church? Westboro Baptists, they're kind of famous in America for being like the picketing church outside of Washington and that, that like hate everyone, you know, they pretty much hate everyone, you know, and, uh, and they're known as that, they, like Westboro Baptists is known as like the hate church, like we, we don't want to be Westboro Baptists where people are like, Harbor City has left, the hate church is gone, you know, um, you want to be the kind of people that when people talk about, they talk about and wonder. Wow, look at what those people are doing. Look at who they are. Look at their character. Look at their way of life. I know for some of us, I'm sure if Glenda had to move out of Glenwood, for example, people would feel that. I was thinking of what Michael is not here, but what he does 
in Durban, if he moved out of Durban and they stopped doing what they're doing, people would feel that. Um, there's significance to their lives making an impact on the areas around them. Jesus is making waves. And it's the story of the kingdom of God as you start in Matthew all the way to the end of Acts and to Revelations. It's the story of the kingdom of God as people are talking about it because there's something happening there. My prayer, my dream is that Harbor City would be a church that if you took us out of the community, the community would miss us. The community would feel like something significant has gone because the church is making a difference. Like Jesus, making a difference. The second thing, my second point, is that we're called, in one sense, to raise a standard in society. We're called to raise a standard. John the Baptist, I mean, this story is so interesting to me, because John the Baptist is pretty much rebuking Herod. Like, that's what he's doing. He's, he's being a true prophet. He's speaking truth to power. Uh, in one sense, that's what he's doing. He's speaking to Herod, who's meant to be a representative of the Jewish people there at the time. He's speaking truth to power, and he's saying, Herod, you are living in a way that is contrary to the very laws in which you are put in place to represent. He's speaking truth to this ruler, Herod, and he's saying to him, Herod, you can't do this. You're living illegitimately. You are, you are living with your brother's wife. What's interesting, the way that it, it says it, is that the gospel writers are, so, are writing this so intentionally. They're writing it so intentionally um, to give you this picture of how John the Baptist was so disapproving of the speaking out against it in the, in the fact that he doesn't even call Herodias Herod's wife. He says, you are living with your brother Philip's wife. You notice that? It's like he's, he's, he's actually fully rebuking Herod at the time. And what, what is John the Baptist doing is he's raising a standard within the people. He's calling the people through Herod to live underneath God's ways. I, I, um, I've got this friend, and um, he's a good friend of mine, and sometimes he could irritate me with one or two things. And, um, and he, we would go on trips. We'd do these trips, and we would, uh, you go on these like missionary trips, whatever we'd call them. I'm not 100% sure what the best name is to describe them. But we'd go and visit churches up in Mozambique and that, and we'd drive up there and drive all the way back. And they're long trips, like four days worth of driving, four days back, you setting up. Uh, everything, you're setting up kitchens and all of this, and everyone kind of has to help. Uh, and I had this one friend, and he would be a little bit irritating because he would just do everything like a little bit more intensely and a little bit better than everyone else. 
you know. So like when you clean up and you like kind of see like there's still like a bit of a mess and you're like, but it's fine. It's like that's not that important. He would be the guy that at the end of it would pack everything away. Everything had to be washed spotlessly. And it's kind of irritating because it makes you feel bad in one sense. You're like, I'm tired. We've had a hectic day. I'm going to sleep. And he's like, I'm just going to finish these last dishes. And you're like, really? Like, now I have to finish the last dishes with you because of that. Like, I just wanted to go sleep, my conscience be clear. But because of you, I feel bad. And he was that guy. He would always want to make sure the job was like 100% completed. Everything was packed away properly. Every dish was washed. Everything was set up like it should have been. He just always, when he was on a trip, it was kind of like the standard that we had set got raised. And it got raised just because of who he was. He came there. He, he, no, he never judged us. He never asked us to do any work. But he just kind of like set the standard higher than we had set it. Um, and I mean, this has happened to me in different times. It's, it's whether you were at school and all of a sudden someone was doing really well in a subject, better than all of you, and you're like, yo, maybe we should be doing better. Like that time when I, I remember the, the one time we were all complaining at school and we were saying, oh, miss, the exam was so hard, it was so difficult, we should be moderated up, blah, 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 and we're all arguing, and then there's this guy who got like 98%, and it's like, well, if it was so hard, how did he get 98%? You're like, oh, loser, what were you doing with your life? Um, but there's, there's times like this, whether it's in the workplace, and sometimes you get frustrated by that person in the workplace because they just work harder, they do better work, they make you feel a little bit bad because what they're doing is they're raising the standard. They, whatever expectations or standard we've set, they come into the place and they set the standard higher. One of the jobs of Christians is to raise the standard in a society. But we raise the standard not just in insignificant things. We raise the standard in morality. That, that is what John the Baptist is doing as a prophet. He's calling the king of the space to change his life. He's calling him to raise the standard. What's interesting about this passage is that you would think Herod would just totally want him out of the picture, but he actually quite likes John the Baptist, and which is the part that I find really fascinating about this thing. He actually really likes John the Baptist. It says Herodias couldn't kill John the Baptist because Herod protected him. Herod actually liked listening to him. He respected him. He respected him as a prophet. And I think there's this reality that some people, especially someone like Herod, who probably was ambitious, when you see someone who's raising the standard and challenging you, even though you may not change yourself, there's a level of respect that comes to see people who are pushing the boundaries, who are trying to make things better, who are living differently and calling us to be different. Herod, while not changing, has this interesting respect, which I think is an interesting tension that even probably we face in society, that as Christians, we should challenge 
the standard of morality in our spaces. And even though some people may not change, we should live in such a way that people respect us even if they won't live like us. That's part of what John the Baptist is doing here. He's calling, he's calling Herod to a different way of life. I think one of the challenges of the church is that when you look at the stats of the church, the church has the same number of divorces as those outside of the church. The church, um, how many times I've heard that people don't want to deal with Christian business people because they're just the worst to deal with. How often do you hear about that the person who's the laziest in the office is a Christian? Or that sometimes the Christian person in your family is the relative that no one likes. And they don't like them because their lives are challenging. They like them just because they're just not great people to be around or are not contributing. How often is the standard that we are setting and displaying so much lower than what people think? I think there's a call for us as Christians to raise the standard of morality in our spaces. I was struck once chatting with someone who worked in the Etiquini, who was a believer, went to church. Um, this is not anyone here in the church, so you know, some people work for Etiquini, but I was challenged when they said to me, to my face, this blew my mind. They said to me, they said, if the right offer came around, I would take a bribe. And I was like, what? You got to, like, I misheard you. Can you say that again? And they were like, no, 100%. If the right offer came around, I would take it. I would take it. I would quit my job. I would go do something do something, something else. I was like, whoa, but you're a Christian. Like, explain this to me. And they're like, everyone's doing it. It's just, it's so, like you can see it. Everyone knows who's doing it. People are benefiting from it. You're not benefiting from it. So he's like, if the right offer came, today I would take it. No, no questions asked. And I thought, whoa, this is, that so like shook me. Because I thought, is this, is this our Christianity? Like, is this how we live? Is this the standard by which we are living by, that we look at the world and we look around us and we look how everyone else is living and we go, I, I'm just going to live like that? But the prophets and John the Baptist in this story is calling Herod and I think calling us to be a people who live by a different standard. And we live by a different standard because we live in a different kingdom. We live under a different authority. We live under Christ. And we'll get to that just now. But can we be a church, a people, that in all of our spaces we are raising the standard of morality, of life, of how we live. Both challenging people because of our high standard while 
earning respect at the same time. Point three, the calling to Christ is a dangerous calling. It's very interesting that this passage comes directly opposite, I mean, after the passage when Jesus had sent all his disciples out. Jesus sends all his disciples out, which we spoke about from, uh, you know, the second half of verse 6 to, to the end of um, verse 13. And it says that they preached, um, you know, drove out many demons, people were healed. Like there is a celebration that the disciples have because they've gone out on Jesus' mission and done this. And then what's the very next story? Hey, guess who else did that? John the Baptist, guess what else happened to him? He died. Like, it's kind of like, it's like just tempering your expectations. It's like, hey, we're going to go do this. It's going to be amazing. Everything is going to be hunky-dory. Like, we're going to go out. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to cast out demons. We're going to heal the sick. The message is going to spread. This is incredible. And it's like the gospel writers just want to say, and also you might die. Look what happened. John the Baptist did that. He lived under his call for God. He did what God called him to, and the end result of his calling was that he had his head beheaded. He died. There is a challenge in this passage. It's both, as theologians say, a precursor to the fact that Jesus is reminding them, don't get ahead of yourself. I myself am going to die. As John the Baptist had his head beheaded, so Christ would be one who would die. It's, it's like setting the tone because the, the gospel begins to change now for the next 10 chapters as it reminds us that Jesus is not just the king who rides in on his horse and does all these glorious things, but he's the king who's come to lay down his life. This begins to set the tone that those who live under Christ don't just always live with everything going their way. That sometimes living under Christ means that people won't like us, that we will go through difficult times and hard circumstances. Sometimes it means we will be persecuted. Sometimes it means people will dislike us because of what we believe. And sometimes it may mean that we will die. As there are right now across the world in different spaces, people who still are laying down their lives for the message of Christ. It's this reminder that the call to follow God is not always one that is hunky-dory. It's the challenge. Sometimes we think about Christianity and going to church, and church is going to be this like little pep talk that's going to remind me that your blessing is on its way. Your Land Rover is waiting at the dealership for you to go and get it. Your bank account is getting four zeros in the next, like, you know, like whatever. Like sometimes we think that is it. Jesus is going to bless me. It's coming. And this is like that story that just kind of like brings us back down to earth. You're like, oh, we can walk on water. We can do this. We can feed the 5,000. And oh, whoops, our head could arrive on a platter. Like it's, it's that 
story that reminds us that following God is both seeing the blessings of the kingdom and the tension as the world pushes back on the kingdom and someone like John the Baptist gets beheaded. Jesus himself reminded his disciples, you are not greater than your master. If your master lays down his life, like, is that not what's waiting for us as well? If Jesus was persecuted, is not persecution and resistance and challenge part of our call in following Jesus? And I love You know what I love about this is the authenticity over throughout history. If you want to stop a movement, you kill its leader. Like that's what happens. If you want to, that's why assassinations happen and things like that. If you want to stop a movement, kill the leader, get them out the way, whatever, and the movement fizzles out. What's different about Christianity is people dying and dying and dying. It's like the story of 2,000 years is people laying down their lives. And it hasn't stopped the movement going forward. It's like one of the ways that we know that this thing is authentic is because no matter how much persecution the church has faced, the church flourishes in persecution. Because people aren't just doing this because there's some flashy leader out there. They're doing this because they believe Jesus is God. The way, the truth, and the life. Point four, and then one more point and we're close. I think one of the things that I'm really challenged by with this passage is, and especially in December, when we're going to lots of work functions and parties and things like that is we kind of like let down our God is what this passage reminds us is the danger of a single moment of carnality. What happens? Herod does not want to kill John the Baptist. He doesn't want to kill John the Baptist. But his stepdaughter comes out dancing, probably 14 years old, some of the The commentators say she's probably 14 years old, probably really beautiful, comes out dancing, as most people would say, in some form of licentious erotic dance. Herod has his flesh aroused, stirred. He's probably drunk at the time. If there were drugs at the time, probably on something, almost definitely drunk. And this moment stirs up within him, and he does something stupid, like... Have you thought about what he says? To a 14-year-old girl dancing in front of him, he promises half his kingdom. You're like, what? Like, it makes no logical sense. Absolutely zero logical sense. But a moment of carnality, and Herod flips the switch, which results in him Ending the life of a person he did not want life to end. A person he was protecting until that moment. It also reminds me, you've got a room full of probably the most powerful people of the region. 
the most powerful people. It's, a, it's Herod's banquet. He is a noble. He's only having powerful people at his banquet. And the person that really wields the power at that banquet is a 14-year-old girl whose one act hits a moment of carnality in Herod, and he ends up doing something he regrets. It's a reminder to us, however powerful, however strong, however good we think we are, we are one moment of carnality away from things we will regret. How many marriages have been ruined because of a moment of carnality at a company function? Yeah. How many lives have been ruined because a moment of carnality, a lump sum of money comes on your desk and it just stirs. In that moment, you lose your head. It reminds us to be careful. All the people who thought they had the power in the story were in, ended up being swayed because carnality got the better of them. Desire, lust. It's a challenge to live our lives carefully. Don't think you're too strong. Because one moment, and all of a sudden, you can have a decision that will, you will regret for the rest of your life. It may not be lust like this, and adultery, or etc. It could be a moment of anger. It could be a moment of greed. Live our lives carefully, for none of us are too strong that that moment won't visit us one day. But when it does, may we be the people who are humble enough to at that point rely on Christ's strength and grace to walk away. Can I close with this? It's one of the interesting things about this passage which is very intentional is that Mark, and Mark knows this, he knows this, Mark introduces Herod in this passage as king, King Herod. Herod was not a king. He was what was called a tetrarch, which means he was a governor. He was put in charge by Caesar. He was put in charge by the Roman king, the Roman emperor, to be a governor over that region. Herod himself was under the governor's rule. He was not a king. He was not a legitimate king of that time. But Mark does this very strategically. And he does it for a reason, because what Mark is wanting us to see in this moment, what he's wanting us to see as we go through this passage is that he's really contrasting 
this illegitimate king who sets himself up as the one who has power over life, who even has power over Jesus' life, as we see towards the end of the story. What Mark does is he calls him a king to play the contrast between the illegitimate king Herod and the king that he's beginning to be telling us about, the King Jesus. He's doing this to contrast the one against the other, to show us that the real king is the one who is in the midst. Who is this Jesus? Is this John the Baptist come back to taunt me? Is this Elijah? Is this another prophet? Or, as John is subtly telling us, I mean Mark is subtly telling us, is this the king who has arrived? Not the illegitimate king, Herod. He contrasts the moment of carnality of Herod that results in John the Baptist's death, as we will go and see on against Jesus, the one who resists the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, the one who, when temptation comes, does something that he regrets against the true king who resists the temptation and goes to the cross. He contrasts the one who will take the life of a prophet versus the one who gives his life. Uh, who lays his life down. He contrasts the one who lives illegitimately against God's ways versus the one who will die for people who live illegitimately against God's ways. He He hints at the story of resurrection. Is this John the Baptist? who has come back to life. No, this is Jesus, the one who will come back to life. This is a story of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It is a story of a wild, illegitimate king. It is the story of Herod, in one sense, painted as the story of King Ahab, The one who will go kill a lowly farmer because he got in his way. You can go read in 1 Kings 21. Him and Jezebel will go and kill this lowly farmer who got in their way. Versus the real king who will lay down his life for all who trust in him. This is a story of the gospel of the coming king, of the king who is rocked up and living, the one who people are asking questions about, the one who is healing, the one who is walking on water, the one who is casting out demons, the one who is feeding the 5,000, the one who quietens the storm, the one who makes the leper clean, the one who teaches not as anyone else but as one who has authority. John, Mark is shifting the narrative at this point. And we're going to see a king who's going to lay down his life. But as he shifts the narrative at this point, he shifts the narrative by displaying what an illegitimate king looks like. 
so that as we get to the end, we can see what a true king in the kingdom of God is really like. The one who resists temptation, the one who is truth, the one who lays down his life, and the one who does all of that for you and I. No matter what we've gone through, no matter what we face, no matter what moment of carnality has wrecked havoc in your life, no matter what difficulty you may face, no matter how much guilt you carry right now, Mark is telling us the story of the king who has come, the king who has come to save you and I from our sins. Can I pray? Father, I pray for us this morning. We just read a story that is the kind of story that makes headlines and people like to read and gossip columns and newspapers about all the wild stuff that goes on. But while we read that, we're also made to think of you, Jesus, the true King, the true Lord, the one who does stand out, who does raise the standard, who challenges us and calls us and shows us unthinkable grace. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would meet with us by your unthinkable grace. I pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning, anyone here this morning who feels overwhelmed by guilt because of something that they've done, maybe because of one single moment of carnality that they've given into. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, lead them to the foot of the cross, to you, Christ, who laid down your life, to set us free from all guilt and shame and to find love and forgiveness in you. I pray, Lord, that you would quieten the storm, the storm of condemnation that's going in our hearts and in our minds, that you, Jesus, would speak your words of amazing grace into those storms and that we would be set free. For you, Jesus, are not the king that binds us, bound to your every whim. You are the king who frees us, frees us, who liberates us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.